You know, sometimes, whoa, sometimes instrumental music without the words is just so wonderful to think and contemplate and meditate upon the Lord, and so I appreciate that special this morning. If you brought your Bible with you, let's open it to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read verses 18 through 25. Our theme this year that we have been focused on is draw near. We began the year in the book of James, and we took for our theme verse, James 4, 8, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. And throughout this year, we have been looking at how we can draw near to God, how God draws near to us, how that there are some things that prevent us from drawing near to God and some obstacles that can get in the way. And so as we come to this Christmas season, I thought that it would be good for us to continue that focus and to realize that God did draw near to us and Matthew 1, 18, verses through, 1, 18 through 25 really highlight for us that truth. Matthew 1, 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife. And he knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I come to you this morning asking for your help. I realize, Lord, that my mind is flooded with a dozen different thoughts, that my attention is easily scattered. And this morning I pray and ask that your Holy Spirit would fill me and focus me on your text and on your truth today. Father, I pray that you would eliminate all distractions from this room and from our minds. I pray, Lord, that you would emerge as the preeminent object in our thinking this morning. And that as we focus in on you and what you did through Christ, I pray that you would receive the worship from our hearts that you so rightfully deserve. Oh, Lord, I pray and ask that you would anoint me afresh and anew, that you would give me power from on high, and that you would help me to tell the story again of how Christ came to earth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the middle of this text, there is a reference to an Old Testament passage. In fact, the book of Matthew makes over 55, or has over 55, Old Testament quotations. Matthew is writing predominantly to the Jewish audience. He is bridging the gap from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And in the very opening lines of the text, when it begins to tell us about Jesus, it alludes to a prophecy that had been foretold 700 years before. 
I point that out because I want you to understand that there is a big picture here. And that as Matthew is telling the story of Jesus, he is setting it in the framework of the unfolding redemption uh, of God. The story of Christmas is the story of God drawing near to us. It is the story of the ages. It is uh, what theologians call the meta-narrative or the big story of God and what he is doing on the earth. And the birth of Christ is the pivot point. There is something significant that is happening here in this passage of Scripture. Think about it this way. All of human history has been divided into two different time periods. B.C. means before Christ. A.D. means Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. It's Latin for in the year of our Lord. And so let me ask you this question. What event is it that stands out like a mountain peak in history that was so significant that it becomes the watershed of history, that all of history hits this point and is either flowed to one side or to the other. It is either before Christ or it is after Christ. And the answer to that question is that it was God drew near through the incarnation of Christ. That is the pivot point. That is the watershed moment. That is what is happening in the middle of this unfolding drama of redemption. It is that God came near to us through the incarnation of Christ. But why did God draw near to humanity at that time and in that way? Why at that time? Why did he wait until that point? And why did he do it in that way? Well, to explain that, we must zoom out and take a look at the big picture and begin at the beginning. If we go back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, we discover that God created mankind for a purpose. He didn't create mankind just to control the vegetation on planet Earth. He created mankind for fellowship. He created mankind for relationship. God created human beings for closeness to him. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, it gives us the record of God creating mankind. In Genesis 1, 26, the Bible says, And God said, us, said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. It goes on, he says, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. Image In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. This is the crowning jewel of God's creation. This is the last thing that God created on that sixth day as he is creating the world and he's creating time, space, and matter. He is creating the sun, the moon, the stars. He's creating animal life. He's creating plant life. He's creating fish life and fowl life. And then he creates human life. And there is a distinction between human life and all the other life forms. And that is that God decided to create a creature that was like him. What does that mean, like him? Well, there's so much that we can unpack from that. But 
primarily what I want you to understand is that God created us like him so that we could have a relationship with him. Unlike the relationship that creation has with God. Right? Creation has a relationship with God. Creation declares that there is a creator. The Bible says that creation moans and travails waiting for his return. Jesus said that if his followers had held their peace, that the rocks would cry out. So there is a relationship between creation and God, but it's different than the relationship between human beings and God. There's a relationship between animals and God. While animals don't have natural intelligence, they have instinctual intelligence, we find that God had used animals. He spoke through a donkey at one time, did he not? Christ entered into Jerusalem and made his triumphal entry on the back of a donkey. Uh, God has the animal kingdom that knows that it has a creator. But God created human beings like himself in order that we might have a close mutual relationship. How are we created in his image and in his likeness? Well, one of the ways is in the fact that we can have a, uh, a contemplative relationship with him. We can think about him. We can understand him. We can communicate with him. We can enjoy him and we can enjoy the things that he has created. This was the created design that God made for mankind and it was sweet I, 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 I hope that we understand that even though the record doesn't give us great details about Adam and Eve's life before the fall, it was a sweet life that they had. They had this unbroken fellowship with God. They had this untainted consciousness of purity. They had not sinned. They had the enjoyment of everything that God had created. They were truly living life the way that God designed it to be lived and it was sweet until Adam and Eve used the free will that God gave them to rebel against him. We know that God gave them one command, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent appears in the garden, he tempts Eve, they eat of the tree and when they do that they bring in the most wicked, most destructive force that the world's ever seen that we've never been able to get rid of and it is the force of sin. In fact, we call this original sin. It's original sin because it is the origin point of sin in human history. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says that uh, sin entered by one man. And that man was Adam. And so the world has this entry point of sin. And when that sin entered into the world and entered into the lives of Adam and Eve, it separated them from God. Their action forever altered all of mankind's relationship with God. It wasn't just an impact on Adam and Eve, but on Adam and Eve's progeny, so that every human being who has proceeded from the original couple has come into this world with an inherited sin nature that separates them from their Creator. Sin put distance between Adam and Eve. And God. If we were to take the time to read through Genesis chapter 3, we would find that Adam and Eve sin. And, and, and when God comes to visit with them, when he comes to fellowship with them in the garden, the Bible says that they are hiding from God. 
Well, that hiding is an indication of their broken relationship. Never had they hid from God before. They looked forward to his arrival. They enjoyed his fellowship. There was nothing to fear. There was nothing to be guilty of. It was this unbroken relationship that they had. But now after sin, they are hiding from God. Why? Because they know that they have sinned. And to be in his presence is to be self-condemned. Not only do we find them hiding in Genesis chapter 3, but in Genesis chapter 3 it goes on to give us the first record of God's punitive judgment against mankind. Do you remember God says to Adam and Eve, well, who told you that you were naked? And Adam says, well, it's the woman that you gave to me. And when God says to Eve, and Eve says, well, it's the serpent. And, and then God begins his judgment with the serpent. And then he brings the judgment back to the woman. And he brings the judgment back to the man. Again, it's the first mention of God's punitive judgment in all of the Bible. It is because mankind's relationship has been broken with God. Not only that, another indication that, that this human relationship with God is forever altered is the fact that Genesis 3 ends with the expulsion from the Garden of Eden. God had created a garden as a special sanctuary for Adam and Eve. It was their home. It was their residence. It was the place of the tree of life. It was the place where God had planted them and placed them. But when they sinned, God expelled them from the garden and set a guard at the gate of the garden to forbid them from entering back into it. Why would that happen? I'm telling you, it is because of sin and that sin separated them from God, their relationship was not the way God had designed it. Isaiah explains this in very simple terms when he says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Neither is his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you. So I, I want you to see the big picture. We have Christ entering, God drawing near to man in Matthew 1. But back here in Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, we have mankind's broken relationship with God. And this relationship is not how God designed it because they invited sin in. And because of sin, they have a distance between them and God. Because of sin, there's a punishment for sin. Because of sin, there's an expulsion from the paradise of God. And Isaiah made it clear and he says, what happened is that our sins separate us from God. Our iniquities hide his face from us. And can I tell you, the distance between man and God has been felt in our souls since the very first couple fell into sin. Every human being who has lived on planet Earth has felt the emptiness, the distance that is in their souls. Sometimes it's hard to articulate if we've not been brought up in a Christian home or heard teaching from the Bible. We not understand what it is, but there is something inside of us that says, that aches, that reminds us that there is something missing in life. I think about the picture of God's redemption and the longing of mankind that is being played out through the Bible. And I hear Isaiah ask, how long, God? 
And I find Jeremiah saying the same thing. How long, God? And I read that Daniel says, how long, God? And Habakkuk, how long, God? All of them cried out, how long, Lord, will we be separated from you? But I believe that the clearest expression of the soul's longing for nearness to God is found in Psalm 13 where the psalmist says this, How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? I'm telling you, that is the heart cry of every human being who is distant from God. It is that cry of how long does this go on? Is there any hope? Why do I feel this sorrow in my soul? Why does the enemy, why does Satan, why does sin triumph over me in my life? How long, oh God, before you come? You felt it. It is the emptiness in your soul created by the distance between you and God. I remember feeling it. I remember before I came to Christ in my early 20s that there were times that I thought, what a cruel joke life is. If this is all there is to it, it is miserable. If I have a few years of enjoyment and then my body begins to go and the people I know begin to get sick and die and the greatest thing that I can pursue is material possessions that really don't satisfy the longings of the soul, what is the point to life? And I'm telling you, it was the emptiness in my soul that was recognizing that there was a distance between me and my creator. Jacob felt it. Jacob felt it acutely the very first night that he was fleeing from his brother Esau. It was what he longed for. It was what he dreamed for. If you remember, the Bible says that Jacob dreamed and behold, he saw a ladder that was set up on the earth. And that the top of it reached to heaven and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on that ladder. What was Jacob dreaming about? I'm telling you, Jacob's dreaming about what Habakkuk dreamed about and what Isaiah dreamed about and what the psalmist dreamed about. It was how long, oh God, before you bridge the gap between us. Jacob dreamed of a bridge between heaven and earth that would allow him to draw near to God and God to draw near to him. And we are told in John 1.51 that Jesus was the fulfillment of Jacob's dream. Jesus said this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, hereafter you shall see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Well, it's nearly identical language to what Jacob dreamed about so many years before. But did you notice that it's not just a ladder bridging the distance between heaven and earth? But that it is God in the flesh who is bridging this impassable void. Jacob dreamed of a ladder. He, he knew that there had to be something that would connect humankind to God but he didn't see it clearly and when Jesus came he says I am Jacob's ladder what you see are the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of God the disciple John will later give written testimony that God came near and as he begins his first epistle 
He says that they saw him when he came. He says that they heard him when he came. He says that they touched him when he came and that they now have fellowship with him. This is the long-awaited prophecy of Isaiah. This is what Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 7, 14, when he said, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. Can I tell you, that's a bold claim. If I was just going to make up a prophecy, I don't think I would make that one up. Right, because it is impossible to fake. It is an unmistakable sign from God. It is something that could not humanly be possible. And yet, that is the claim. Isaiah is saying, I'll tell you how long. I'll tell you how to recognize it when God comes near. He's going to come in a way that nobody else has ever come. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And you will call his name Emmanuel. That's the first time in all of Scripture that that name is found. Emmanuel. What's the significance of that name? Does it mean anything to me? Why should it mean anything to me? What does it mean? Well, let me give you a little Hebrew lesson. In Hebrew, in Hebrew, uh, the, uh, the prefix, suffix, el, is a shortened form of the Hebrew word Elohim. Elohim is the name for God. It's the title for God. It is used over 2,600 times in the Old Testament. Every time it says God, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, God said to Abraham, it's Elohim, Elohim, Elohim. That's the name for God. And so El is the shortened form for Elohim. El is used as both a prefix and a suffix. That is, it can be attached to the beginning of a word to make a compound word, or it can be attached to the end of a word to make a compound word. For example, here are some words that you have read many times uh, that have that prefix. Uh, Elijah, El-Ijah, Elijah. That means God is Jehovah. And so when Elijah's parents named him, he was divinely named. God inspired them to do that because he was going to declare that God is Jehovah, that God is the God of Israel. Elijah means God is Jehovah. Well, what about, uh, how about Elijah's successor? Elisha, Elisha. His name means uh, God is salvation. Elisha prophesies and preaches and proves that God is salvation. His name, Elisha, means God is salvation. Similarly, here are some examples of it used as a suffix. Uh, Samuel, right? Samuel. Uh, that means God hears. If you remember, Samuel's mother had prayed for a son, and God, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. I'll, all I want to, to do is to serve you and be your handmaid. And when she has a son, she names him Samuel. God hears. God heard my prayer. And it's a testimony to his life. How about Daniel? Daniel. It means God is judge. Here's Daniel living in a post-exilic time. Babylon has conquered Jerusalem. It seems like everything has fallen apart. Israel has fallen. God's promises have fallen with it. That there's no justice in the world. And God says, we're going to name this one Daniel. Because I'm still the judge. 
and I will overrule in the affairs of man. So see how it works? It can be used as a prefix, Elijah, Elisha. It can be used as a suffix, uh, Daniel, uh, Samuel. Now, how we see that it works, what does Emmanuel mean? Well, Matthew told us, he gave us the interpretation, God with us. That's what the name means. Now, consider this. The prophets had names expressing that God is Jehovah. That's fine. They had names that expressed that God is salvation. That's true. They can bear that banner. They had names expressing that God is judge, and that's a true testimony. But do you realize that only Jesus Christ could be called Emmanuel? Because he was God with us. Elijah could not have borne that name. Uh, Daniel could not have borne that name. Only Jesus could have been given that name because only Jesus is God with us. And so Isaiah says, here's the sign a virgin will conceive and you will call his name Emmanuel. And John, when he writes the record of the birth of Jesus, he says, so that the prophecy of Isaiah would be fulfilled that his name is Emmanuel, God with us. Unless we take this metaphorically, let me remind you that the Bible says in 1 Timothy 3.16 that God was manifest in the flesh. There's a lot of people who, for some reason have a hard time accepting the fact that God became a man. And they want to say that Jesus was a good man or that he was a great man or maybe he was a prophet like a prophet of old. Maybe he was a man who had powers that were unlike other people's powers, but they struggle to accept the fact that Jesus is God. And yet, that's clearly what the Bible is teaching. From the very beginning of the new covenant, his name is Emmanuel God with us. God does not want us to have doubts. He doesn't want us to speculate and wonder, well, is Jesus really God? He wants us to know. He wants us to know for certain that Jesus was God and that Jesus came as God in the flesh. If you have your Bible with you, would you travel with me to the book of Hebrews Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews is a New Testament book, but it is really a commentary on the Old Testament. And Hebrews is explaining the big picture. It is teaching us that Jesus is the supreme sacrifice for our atonement. That the lamb, the Passover lamb, was simply a, a type of Christ. Hebrews is teaching us that, that Jesus is our great high priest and that Aaron and all the high priests that ever came before Jesus were simply typologies, that there would be one mediator who mediates between God and men and that Jesus would be the full and final high priest. But he begins the book. Hebrews begins by declaring that Jesus is God. Hebrews 1.1 says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he 
had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. What these verses are saying is that God spoke at different times and in different ways in times past through the prophets. So in the big picture, that's B.C. Before Christ, God spoke, but he did it through spokesmen. He spoke through men like Abraham. He spoke through men like Moses. He spoke through men like David and men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel. Before Christ, God spoke at different times in different ways through the prophets. But then Hebrews goes on to say, but now... Now, in the last days, days, A.D., after Christ, in the year of our Lord, God spoke directly to us through His Son. Something significant has happened. There has been a pivot point in the narrative. And now, instead of speaking through the prophets, He has spoken to us through His Son. And then He goes on to describe His Son as the co-owner of all things as the co-creator of the world, as the outshining or the radiance of His glory, and as the same exact expression of Himself. Hebrews 1, 3 says that He is the express image of the person of God. That means the same exact expression. That means if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God, because they are one and the same. I'm telling you, that is a mighty declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ. Because sadly, we've come to this place where we celebrate Jesus the baby. And the babe in the manger is the sweet, precious little child who represents the, the hope of the world. But there are so many people who don't accept the fact that that babe was God in the flesh and that he didn't remain a babe, but he grew into a man. And that man had words and that man spoke and that man said some things that divide the world. And you either believe him or you don't believe him. You either follow him or you reject him. You either receive him or you turn from him. You cannot be indifferent to Jesus Christ. You either believe that he is God or that he is not God. You cannot have it any other way. That phrase makes it clear that Jesus is God. That he is co-equal. He is co-eternal. He is co-existent with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, but the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. It is a great mystery, Paul said, but nonetheless, it is truth. So God drew near to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, that makes this more impactful. I mean, if God had just sent an envoy, we might say, well, you know, we're kind of important to him. And maybe if he sent to us a ranking officer from his administration, we'd say, well, we're, we're a little more important to him. But if God himself comes, that means this is the most important event that has ever happened. And that is what happened. 
But why did he come? Did he come just for a visit? Did he come just to make an appearance? I am your king. You know who I am. I don't want you to get disenfranchised, so I'll just drop in for a visit. Do you really think that that is why God came in the flesh? No, he came to make atonement for our sins. He came to do something that no one else could do. He came in the flesh to do what no one else in the flesh could do. That was to be the sacrifice and the full payment for our sins. That was so that he could draw us near to God through himself. Hebrews 1.3 expresses that when it says that he by himself purged us from our sins and then went and sat at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, the impediment of sin has precluded us from coming near to God. In our sin, we cannot get near to God. We want to get near to God, but there is this monument of a mountain that we cannot get over. It is called sin, and we may make some efforts and climb up a little bit, but sure enough, we will lose our footing and we'll fall back down into the crevice and the deep divide of our iniquities. So Jesus took it out of the way. He removed it completely. Colossians said he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. His death is what satisfied the righteous requirements of the law for our sin. And by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the impediment of sin that kept us at a distance from God has now been removed. And in its place stands grace. In its place stands the Savior, suspended between heaven and earth, arms outstretched so that whosoever will may come and have access to God the Father through Jesus Christ. And Hebrews says he now sits at the right hand of the Father as the mediator between God and men. By the way, 1 Timothy says there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave his life a ransom for all. It's the babe in the manger. He had to come as an infant to grow into a man so that he could give his life volitionally for our sins. Jesus drew near to us so that he could draw us near to God. You see, we couldn't get there on our own. No matter how much reformation we attempted, no matter how many prayers we prayed, no matter how many church services we attended, no matter how many times we get baptized, none of it would draw us closer to God without Christ. What we celebrate at Christmas is embodied in the name Emmanuel, God with us. Would you bow your heads this morning for just a moment? We do this to give each other a little bit of privacy, to focus our own thoughts on the Word of God that we've just heard. What we celebrate today is the great good news that God came to be with us. When we couldn't get to Him, He came to us. However, the question remains, is God with you? Yes, He came as a man in the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, he came to the earth and he died for your sins. But the only way that he comes into your life is by your invitation, by your faith, by your acceptance of him. 
And it doesn't matter if your mom or dad are Christians, your grandma or your grandpa, or if you've been raised in church all your life, if you personally have never trusted Christ, then you don't have Christ. But the wonderful news, the most blessed news, is that you can receive Him today. If you repent of your sins and you put your faith in Christ for salvation and you confess Him as your Lord... You can be saved. So let me ask you this morning, while everybody's head is bowed and nobody's looking around, is there anyone here today that would say, Pastor, I need to trust Christ. I've never done that, and I want to. Would you raise your hand this morning while no one is looking around? I won't embarrass you in any way, but I do want to pray for you. This is the most important decision in all of your life. This is the decision that determines whether you go to heaven or whether you go to hell. There is no substitute for this. And so if you're here today and you have doubts about whether or not you're saved, you have doubts about whether or not you've really trusted Christ, would you be honest enough just to raise your hand this morning so that I can pray for you? Anybody in the room this morning? Nobody else is looking around. Only me. Christian, are you enjoying the gift that God gave to you? You've received him into your heart. You've trusted him by faith. But have you allowed some distance to come between you and him? Oh, wouldn't it be a wonderful time? Wouldn't it be a wonderful Christmas story to make your return to the Lord today? He stands with open arms. He desires nothing more than to have a close relationship with you. He loves you for who you are, not for what you can be, but for who you are right now. Oh, Lord, I thank you so much for the wonderful Christmas story. I thank you for the fact that you left your palace in heaven and that you came to a manger in Bethlehem, that you left the riches and that you came to live in poverty, that you left your position of power and you came as a servant that you forfeited your life for our sins so that you could give us your life. Oh, Father, I pray today that you would help us as Christians who know you to enjoy you, to find that sweet fellowship like Adam and Eve once had before sin entered in, and to realize that that is our created purpose and design and our privilege that we can walk with you, and that we can share a mutual love with you. So, Lord, I pray that for each and every Christian this Christmas. And I do pray if there's anybody who does not know, anybody who has doubts, I pray, Lord, that they would not live in that place of doubt, but that they would put their faith and trust in you, and to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they have Christ in their hearts. I pray this in his name. Amen.